is Our American Stories, and our crew is always looking for, well, different kinds of stories that interest us and make us laugh, and hopefully will make you laugh or think or even cry. And this one stumbled on our desk, and it's called Anger Rooms, A Smashing New Way to Relieve Stress. This was in the New York Times, and we love getting our stories from small papers in the middle of the country and some of our great papers in some of our biggest cities. And Donna Alexander, well, she knows a lot about Anger Rooms, and she joins us right now. Donna, thanks for coming on. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Look, before we get into this new way to relieve stress, and I can't wait to hear it because I think we've all got it, and I think we've all got what we think are solutions to this. Let's talk about you first. Uh, Talk a little bit about, we love talking to people about their parents, their family, where they were born, and how that shaped them. So share with us a little bit about those things. Okay. um, Well, I was born in Atlantic City, New Jersey, uh, but I was raised in Chicago, Illinois, and I come from a military background. So um, both my mother and my father uh, were Army, uh, they're Army veterans. And I spent all of my summers in uh, New York, um, in the Bronx. So um, I kind of got a, <laughs> a a taste of a lot of different cities and things, especially coming from a military uh, family. And um, when I attended school, I actually majored in commercial and residential architecture um, and graphic design and multimedia. And then later on in life, I had two kids. So I'm a mom of a daughter and a son uh, that are 10 and 12 years old. That's fantastic. And tell me about the, you know, we love talking to folks who had military experience or families uh, who had a lot of military experience. I'm a a son of an Air Force uh, officer, and I was conceived in Lackland Air Force Base and was born in Sampson Air Force Base. I mean, I figured out the chronology, and I Mm -hmm. bounced around, and and it sounds like you bounced around. What, how did that help shape and form your character? I I love asking this question to people who bounced around a lot uh, under the military umbrella. I know that it it gave me a lot of experience and just the different um, cultures and backgrounds of, of different people because, you know, from bouncing from one area to another, that means I'm going to different schools all the time, so I'm meeting people from all different walks of life. So, I mean, I think it just built my character and just being more understanding to people who are uh, different and have uh, different backgrounds and and uh, lifestyle. So I think it helped in that fact. And then it also gave me a, a sneak peek at, um, at traveling. Um, it lets me, it let me know that I like traveling. <laughs> so um, it, it actually, I guess, played a, a nice little part in, in my life. Well, and you grew up, you, you spend a lot of time, you said in the summers in the Bronx and uh, as a kid from Northern New Jersey, one of the great pleasures of my life, a dear friend of mine said, Let's go take a bike ride across the George Washington Bridge, and let's go to this place called Orchard Beach. And there was a guy named Tito Puente playing at the beach on a Sunday night. And I went there, and I was shocked to find like 100,000 people that went to this beach, Orchard Beach, every Sunday to catch some of the great Latin artists of the world play there for free. Uh, did Did you ever have the opportunity to go to Orchard Beach? No, I haven't. I actually haven't been able to go there. Um, usually when I got to New York and I played, I 
stayed right in the Bronx and then went to, you know, I just went to Manhattan, the different boroughs, and then my grandmother uh, would take me traveling with her. So then I would go to Philadelphia and, you know, South and North Carolina and things like that. So um, I didn't get to enjoy, like, too much outside of uh, Manhattan, Queens, and uh, and Brooklyn uh, when I was in New York. Well, if you ever get a chance, it still happens, and it's uh, mostly Dominican and Puerto Rican families, second, third, fourth generation, who just won't move. And I think part of the reason they won't move are Sundays at Orchard Beach, and it's a delight. Everybody grills, cooks out, and everybody dances. Everybody. It's required <laughs> And it's, a, it's just a beautiful thing. Let's talk a little bit about this, this enterprise. Um, you know, I, I read this piece in the New York Times. How did, how did it come to you that there needed to be such a thing as an anger room? Um, when I was 16 and at home in Chicago, um, at the time, I want to say that was around 98, and we had a real bad problem with uh, overpopulation of our jail system. And I just figured that, I could help out in some way, and I think part of that is because I had a lot of people who I knew, friends and family members, uh, that went to jail for, like, punching holes in walls or damaging other people's property. And I was like, well, what if they had a place where people can do that and not get in trouble for it and not go to jail for it? So um, that's kind of where the idea sparked, and then I thought that it was so good that someone else would come out with it. So I kind of left it alone for a few years and finished school. And I had moved to Dallas in 2002. And when I moved there, the idea resurfaced again. So I did some searching and no one had came out with it. So I still left it alone. (laughs) And then in 2008, that was like the last time this idea just kept popping up. And I was like, okay, I just need to go ahead and do it. So I started it out of the garage of my home in 2008. And I would invite my friends and coworkers to come break stuff in my garage for five bucks. And they started telling other people. And I started getting strangers at my house asking if that was the place to break stuff. So uh, when that happened, I knew that I had something. And that's basically how the anger room was born. Well, I love it. And when we come back, we're going to dig into the stuff people break, how you built this business and where it is now. It sounds like you're spreading out. Las Vegas and Los Angeles are on the horizon And we're talking to Donna Alexander and her story from the New York Times, Anger Rooms, a smashing new way to relieve stress where people pay Donna a few bucks and they just whack and destroy stuff. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. You can go to Our American Network to catch all that we do. More with Donna Alexander after these messages. Yeah. American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Donna Alexander. 
And an article in the New York Times recently, Anger Rooms, a smashing new way to relieve stress was the headline. And my goodness, you've got to pick that up and read it. And we just started laughing. But there was something deep that was being captured here. So, Donna, you, you have your garage, and people are coming in. And what are they busting up in that garage? Um, they were breaking things like TVs and computers, um, laptops, a lot of electronics, and uh, like stuffed animals and things like that, whatever I can find. Um, around my neighborhood that we had that we would have out for our bulk trash pickup days. And and so this continues to happen and you're thinking, I have a business idea here. What volume of business triggered you to think I need to get a separate location away from my garage? I think I've got the demand. I think I got myself a business. Um I wanna say is the I know is the day that the stranger came to my door and asked, was this the place to break stuff? Um, because before then, I didn't have a problem when it was just like a lot of my friends and coworkers, and they would come all the time. So it kind of turned into like almost a traditional thing at my home. But when the stranger started popping up, I'm like, okay, you guys are telling other people, but other people are interested. So um, that's kind of when I knew that, hey, I may have something here just because I have strangers coming up. And I, it turned out that I did. So. And do people bring their own stuff to break, Donna, for the most part? Um, sometimes they do. We don't require it because we always have stuff in stock, but they're more than welcome to bring their own stuff whenever they want to. <laughs> and so how do, how, do we, how do we get from the garage to the business? I mean, what was your business plan? Did you go to a bank to get the money? What was your first location? Talk about this first actual real toe into the real world of business, taking it away from a home business, and actually taking that risk, Donna, with your time and your capital. Yeah. um, Going from a garage to my first location, um, I kind of just, like, jumped in there and went for it. So I didn't have any uh, traditional uh, bank financing or anything like that. What I did is I started... uh, from the background work. So I wanted to start on trademarks and patents and intellectual property. And then I worked on my business plan and came up with my own pricing because I wanted something that was reasonable and affordable for everybody in every income level. So um, it, I wanted just to make it fair. And then once I incorporated all of that into my business plan, I started to look for uh, potential locations. And I already had an idea of where I wanted to be at, so I started there, and it turned out that it was, like, too expensive at the time. So I would just search around to find somebody to tell me yes because I got a 1,000 and plus no's and doors closed and people laughing and thought that it was for crazy people. So um, I finally got a guy three years later um, that was willing to sublease to me. So my first space was a little bit over... Um, 780 square feet and he just let us go uh, go for it and when we did uh, before I even opened the doors I had accumulated a waiting list so I had a four month long waiting list it's fantastic uh, yeah <laughs> by the way I'm a landlord I own some commercial property and for anybody who's a landlord out there you're always thinking hmm who do I want in my space and <laughs> I, I guess you had to be thinking or at least the people who you were talking to had to be thinking she breaks stuff uh, next. I mean, you know, what if a brick goes through like the... Exactly. 
Exactly. So finally, you get a landlord to believe in you. You've got a waiting list. What about insurance? What are, are you able to insure this business? Oh, yes. That was the very next thing that um, that came up. And it was funny because I thought I got I had covered every aspect of my business, but I didn't think about the insurance until I got my first landlord. And he was like, hey, you think you're going to need some insurance? And I was like, you know what? Yes, I do. So I, I searched. Uh, it only took me a few months to obtain insurance, but um, I was able to get us insured, fully insured, and even the insurance company, uh, when I had to explain to them what we do and how we do it, um, they were they were really skeptical about it because it was something new and not, uh, something they never insured before. So um, it just took a little bit of convincing and explaining to them how we run the business, and then they were able to uh, cover us. So, yeah, we definitely have. have so, so your sales skills, Donna, went beyond selling to customers. I mean, this is, by the way, what we learn over and over again when people start businesses. The sale never stops. The selling never stops. You had to convince an insurance company to cover you. And by the way, it turns out, Donna, we learned there had never been a category for your business before. And as you know, insurance companies have to predict models of risk based on well, what's happened in that industry before? You are mm-hmm. actually a pioneer here, Donna. You are the first. The first. Good for you. Yeah. So now let's Thank talk you. about your expansion plans. You, you, you succeed in this first location. And where is the actual location of that first store? Um, it's, in a, it's called Richardson, Texas. It's still in Dallas, but I guess it's considered um, a suburb of Dallas. Yep. So uh, the very first location is in Richardson, Texas, uh, directly across the street from Texas Instruments. This is one of our biggest um, companies that we have here in Dallas. So we were right across the street from them. And who are your who are your clients? Talk about who are the folks who come in? More men than women? Old, young, corporate, uh, hipsters? Uh, are, are, do hipsters <laughs> have anger issues? Well, you know what? We get people from all walks of life. It is so... I think because everybody can relate to it, we it's hard for us to target down a specific demographic because we get all ages that come in, all professions, incomes, and things like that. Um, but I do see the majority of our customers that do come all deal with the same issues, which is um, uh, family issues and work-related issues and relationship issues. Those are like the top three and we can get people as young as 13 coming in with their parents, and we've had people as old as 75 uh, come in and break stuff. So um, we just we just attract a lot of different people. <laughs> and do you see actual therapeutic outcomes from this, Donna? I mean, do, do people come in more stressed and leave happier? Yes. Um, it's been eight years now, I believe, so... Um, from all of that uh, experience and watching people come in, come out, things like that, uh, it does show uh, a lot of therapeutic value. And I get people all the time uh, that participate, and they'll send me an email or give me a call and let me know how it affected their lives. It, it even helps out health-wise because we've had people that participated and lost tremendous amounts of tremendous amount of weight. Uh, just for participating in the anger room. So I think it has a lot of uh, different uh, beneficial potential there. Well, Donna, tell us one of your favorite stories, if you can, from uh, <laughs> your time in, uh, running in the anger room. 
Um, I would have to say uh, one of my favorite uh, sessions was we had a guy that asked for an office space, and we thought it was going to be just a typical person coming in to break stuff. Well, when he came in, he actually acted out a scene, and I'm guessing that it was probably from his workplace. And he sat down, and he picked up the telephone, and he pretended like he was talking to somebody, and he got mad because um, the person didn't sell enough shares or something like that. And then as soon as he finished acting out the scene, he, like, totally destroyed the room, like, to bits and pieces. It was awesome. <laughs> That's my most memorable one. <laughs> That's great. And tell me what your plans are, Donna. You're, you're heading off to two new cities. And I assume you have to figure out which cities have a, a, an index of anger. I'm thinking that, you know, some parts of America might not have as much anger as others. But what's your goal? What, what, in your dream, in your, in your vision, in your blueprint for success? What does that look like, Donna? Um, my goal, I would love for the Anger Room just to be a household name. Um, I would like to see one in every country and every state because I believe everyone needs an outlet. Um, and sometimes uh, we need a physical outlet, something that is normally frowned upon in public, but you can actually go somewhere and do it and not worry about getting judged or uh, getting in trouble for it. So I would love to see it um, all over the place and be able to help as many people as I can as they deal with uh, stressful times and, you know, things that make people angry, uh, angry all the time. They just need a place to, to let their hair down, and that's what I want. Well, when I'm company. in Dallas, Donna, I'm going to come to Richardson, and I want to bust some stuff, and I want to film it. Angerroom.com. Angerroom.com is where you can go to learn more. And... We want to talk to you more, Donna, and follow this dream of yours. So you know, let's catch up in about six months, see how many more stories we've got. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. We've been speaking with Donna Alexander. The article the New York Times, Anger Rooms, a smashing new way to relieve stress. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, where we love to tell stories about everything, but particularly just about American life. And one of the cornerstones of American life is work, and it's also entrepreneurship and free enterprise and just living your dream by starting a business. And the intersection of these two things, because when a person starts a business, ultimately to grow it, they've got to hire workers. And so we wanted to talk to a few people about this, and we're talking to ordinary Americans all across this country, ordinary workers, and just as important, perhaps more important, and not that the workers aren't important, but if we don't have people creating jobs, there's no place for people to work. And so we want to talk to those people who have the daring and courage to start new businesses and run them, and talk to them about what's going on in their lives too. And joining us for this series is Jane Johnson and Zach Model, and welcome both of you to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you for having us. 
Now, Jane, let's start. Let, let's start with the worker first, and let's learn a little bit about you, Jane. Uh, because when I hear the name Jane, I don't think machinist. Uh, yeah. Generally, talk to me about your life and what led you to become this thing called a machinist. Okay. Well, um, I was uh, born on the west side of Chicago. Uh, I lived and was raised by my grandmother. Um, unfortunately, my mom, she had schizophrenia, so she wasn't able to care for me as well. So I lived with her until I was uh, 13. And um, once I became 13, my grandmother, she became ill with liver cancer. And uh, after she passed away, uh, I moved to my great aunt's, which is my grandmother's sister's house also on the west side of Chicago. And from there, um, I've grown. I've graduated from high school. I went to college for a couple of years, came back because my aunt was a little sick and she needed help. And um, from there, I, I was at home, and I realized, hey, I have to contribute. I have to do something. I have to contribu contribute to society somehow. <laughs> so um, I had a counselor, and she uh, gave me a little bit of information about uh, TMA, which is a uh, program that teamed up with this church called Bethel New Life. Um, uh, technology manufacturing aligned with TMA, and uh, I attended classes there. I got really excited because I always had a love for just anything I can get my hands on, being technical, uh, anything that I can basically rip apart and find out how it works. <laughs> so that was that program was perfect for me. I went to school for a couple of weeks and graduated. And, uh, yeah, after graduation, I, was I mean, Zach reached out to me. And from there, uh, <laughs> that's all I have been. The rest is history. <laughs> yep. And, Jane, it's interesting because when you start talking about taking stuff apart and putting it back together, I got a little girl who loves the same thing, and I can try and put a little bow on her head and put a dress. She ain't having any of it. She wants to learn how to take apart a gun. She wants to learn how to take <laughs> oh, wow. apart anything that moves. And I just don't want to get in the way. Now, here's what's interesting. You're, you're, you're now working in a place, doing something you love. You don't have a college degree. This is, by the way, something we talk over and over with people about. Uh, college is just isn't right for everybody. We're not here to slam colleges. We have a great sponsor that's a college. But for you, it just didn't make sense. Talk a little bit about that and how this training changed your life. Definitely, the training has changed my life in so many ways. Um, number one, I have gotten a leg up in society thanks to this training. So uh, without having a degree, uh, some people might feel that they won't be able to contribute to society or do anything for themselves, and they'll just be falling by the wayside. But no, uh, training, it actually gave me a little bit of knowledge and a little bit more something to work with than the average Joe. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, manufacturing, the whole industry has just brightened my eyes and made me believe that there is still a way for me as a regular, a little bit more than a regular Joe, I would say. <laughs> yeah, I would, I would say. And, you know, you right now, you're, you're a single young woman living in, a, in what, what we can charitably call a pretty tough neighborhood, the west side mm -hmm. of Chicago. Tell us about what it's like there and do you sometimes wonder or wish you could talk to some of your friends there and share with them your experience? Do you? And are they inclined to maybe follow you? Have you led any people to, to follow you in your steps, Jane? Well, I have told a couple of people about the program. And, uh, yeah, on the west side of Chicago, there is crime everywhere you go. There's constant uh, drug dealing. There's gang begging. There's all of that. And I kind of 
uh, stayed stayed by the wayside with that. I, I I didn't want any business with that because if I would anything that I would do would bring any harm to my family, that would just completely crush me because obviously family is all I have, and I would want to do as much as I can to protect it and contribute to it. So I stayed out of the streets. I didn't do anything that would my aunt would call stupid and um yeah i just i've let a couple of people know in my neighborhood about it but unfortunately the way that they think they don't think that they don't have enough confidence in themselves or they might turn their nose a certain way at what i do but hey at least i'll let them know yep you let them know and life's filled with choices in the end and you know the tragedy of so many of these neighborhoods is simply an utter lack of family guidance and actually, uh, when and where it can, the church just isn't in enough of these folks' lives, too. And let's face it, this, this, this uh, faith-based nonprofit really had a lot to do with this life change. Definitely, definitely, yeah. And Jane, you, 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 and by the way, we're going to be getting to Zach Model in just a minute, but we always love to talk where, where we think stories should start. And in my mind, where this started was... My goodness, the work of Zach, the entrepreneur, allowed Jane to have a job. And so we want to start with Jane because, my goodness, um, this job doesn't exist. And and Jane may not have a way out of the unsafe and violent neighborhood that she currently lives in. And, Jane, where where are you dreaming of moving to? Well, initially it's Oak Park. Uh, That's that's the dream. It seems very cultured, safe, and as well as uh, just uh, pretty darn Trending, trendy neighborhood, I would say. Good. And yeah, you want what all people want in the end, and that's to have a, a, a safe and decent place to raise mm-hmm. your family. And, and, and tell me, if you would, about uh, your boss. Um, he reached out to you. Um, what has he meant in your life, and what has this job meant to your life, Jane? Well, initially, uh, Zach... He actually came to me the day of my graduation and offered me a job. So from that day, it was actually pretty – he's been a – how do I say this? He's been a shocker of mine. He's been a great shock to me because I would have never imagined someone of his stature would come up to me and initially offer me a job without me even knowing him or him knowing me as well. So he's been constantly dropping all of these <laughs> – blessings my way and it was I mean he's he's a great guy very friendly smile that can light up a room he's 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 amazing and and you know he did something that we don't do often enough and that's place our belief in people we're doing a a a story about Brett Favre's retirement speech and in that retirement speech Jane what was interesting is this guy from Little Kiln Mississippi a poor rural town in a place where nobody goes anywhere and constantly, Brett Favre told the story of how total strangers and people he barely knew believed in him more than he believed in himself, and that he couldn't have gotten he couldn't have gotten where he got. And uh, that's got to mean a lot to you to have a total stranger come up to you on your graduation day and say, "You know what? I like you, kid. Come work for me." Yep, <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, well, good for you, Jane. Look, when we come back, it's going to be time to talk to Zach, and we're going to be talking to Zach Model and his business, and that's Atlas Tool and Die Works, and that's in Chicago, Illinois. And he employs Jane, and he employs some other folks there, too. We're going to learn all about Zach's life and what he's up against in Chicago as an entrepreneur trying to build, grow, 
and in the end, expand his business like all good entrepreneurs. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and we're continuing our final thought segment, celebrating and commemorating the life of Jerry Doyle. I was a friend of his, and Jesse was an even closer friend. We both worked with Jerry, and we've learned he was an actor, he was a trader. He worked for Michael Milken at Milken's desk at Drexel Lambert. He was a pilot and was respected by hardcore pilots. And then he decided to do a talk show, and he was an interesting guy. He didn't want to toe the line for the right. He didn't want to toe the line for the left. And so his show, well, it could have been a lot bigger if he decided to do either of those things, but he decided not to, and he walked a very different path. And it was a big show, but that wasn't what he cared about because it could have been a much, much bigger show if he decided to cut some corners and tie some knots together. But Jerry, that wasn't his style. And so now we go back to Jesse, who knew Jerry so well, and to Rick Alberton, one of Jerry's best friends. Take it away. Over the years of getting to know Jerry Doyle, I had the opportunity to get to know some of his friends. But there's one guy in particular that Jerry seemed to talk about the most, his buddy Rick Alberton. I remember one time when I was having a really hard time, and Jerry and I were talking like we always did. Jerry actually patched Rick in on the phone call so they could tag-team me with some advice on how to get through my personal struggle. I know just how much Jerry loved Rick, and it's an honor to have him here to share with us some of his thoughts and memories of our beloved friend, Jerry Doyle. Jerry Doyle. This guy was my friend for 20 years. Man, it's a long time. I still remember the night we met, though. It was a uh, hotel bar in Maryland. Shocker, right? In a bar. There was a uh, sci-fi convention in the hotel, and I remember I was sitting at the bar drinking a bourbon and this tall guy with this really, you know, distinctive, deep voice sits down next to me and strikes up a conversation. You know, I call it that. He actually started talking trash about my bourbon. I think I was drinking Knob Creek or something and he starts telling me about Maker's Mark and I got to try it. And so I try it and what do you know? Damn if he wasn't right. It's pretty good stuff. So we talk cigars and women and before long we're out of dinner eating steaks and swapping war stories. And this guy had some serious stories. By the end of the night, we closed down their hotel restaurant, and he uh, suggested we take the party out, and we end up in a gentleman's club, and, hell, we stay there until, like, before dawn. And, you know, the details I think of, I'll take to my grave. But that was my first night out with Jerry, and there would be literally thousands more over the years. 
he was a fun, outgoing guy who just loved to go out and enjoy life. I hear people talking about living life to the fullest, and it always sounds inane coming from them, but this guy did that, and like in spades. He used to say, here's to the night we'll never remember, but people will never forget. Jerry was the most genuine and loyal person I've ever known. And smart. Man, he was a smart guy. Always a step ahead of everyone in the room. Like to say, you know, smartest guy in the room, that was him. And his table was always, you know, the, the cool kid's table. The best seat in the house. Jerry saw the humor in everything. Politics, religion, business. His uh, dysfunctional Irish Catholic family. Uh, three marriages and this crazy-ass love life. It was how he survived, I think. Laughter was medicine, but it was also kind of infectious. And he always let you in on the joke, you know? I mean, even if you, like, were the joke. Nobody was safe, either. He was, in his own words, an equal opportunity offender. Um, he used to talk about the Catholic Church, you know? He said, uh, you know, going to confession, and you start off with saying, uh, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. He said, but after that big scandal they went through and all that stuff, he said he'd sit down and say, uh, you go first. <laughs> and uh, he was a lot more than just a funny guy, though, you know. I mean, he was a, he was a reinventor, um, mostly of himself. I mean, over the past 40 years, he became a, a pilot, a stockbroker, an actor, a politician, an author, a talk radio show host, and... Ultimately, a, a web-based entrepreneur. You know, most of us have one career. This guy had seven. And pretty much he kicked ass at all of them. In 1980, he was working for Falcon Jet, and he crashes this party at the Playboy Club in Jersey. And uh, while he's there, he talks himself into a stockbroker job in California. Really? I mean, he drives out there, all the way out west, broke as a joke, He's sleeping on the floor for six months, cold calling, and before you know it, he's loaded, successful, and uh, kicking ass as a stockbroker. And he did it for like more than a decade. But then it was like he planted his flag and then was, you know, ready to move on. He hung up a Series 7 license, and then he went to Hollywood to become an actor. And he didn't go to Hollywood to, like, try to become an actor or to work on being an actor. He went out there to become an actor, and he did it. He used to call L.A. the high cost of living low. Kind of a joke, you know, but he was a natural out there. He smooth-talked and BS'd his way into guest spots and day player roles in soap operas. I mean, there were people working for years out there that couldn't do what he did. And then all of a sudden, he hits it big. He lands a starring role in a television series, his own show. For the next five years, he gets to play Station Security Chief Garibaldi on Babylon 5 to the delight of millions of sci-fi fans around the world. And I'm talking about the whole world. When he passed away, if you look at Facebook for that week, messages were pouring in from, from his fans, I mean, from around the globe, remembering him and expressing shared grief at his loss. I mean, I, I it, it touched me, and they weren't even talking about me. I loved the guy, you know, and, and I remember we were traveling one time, coming back from a sci-fi show in Europe one time. And, uh, you know, against the advice of his lawyer, namely me, he had this carry-on bag full of small bills from signing autographs at his table. And so we're waiting in line, and I'm telling him that he's an idiot, you know, he's going to get us popped by customs and all. And what do you know? He scanned his bag, and boom, we're detained. Our bags have been checked already, though, 
the stuff that was going on the plane, and they're probably on the plane. And I'm starting to freak out, and then one of these big burly German airport security guys takes us both by the arm and starts dragging us into this little room, and I'm thinking, oh, hell, here it comes. So then we get in there, and I'm expecting the cuffs to come out, and this guy starts laughing. He's, like, saying in broken English, you know, Garibaldi doesn't wait in my line. And so then he takes us, and he grabs us, and he takes us through the crew door, out onto the tarmac, and straight to our plane. It was pretty sweet. Jerry always told these stories better than I could. And, uh, you know, there's a million of them. We had adventures all the time. It was, you know, it was just great. And uh, it's a really, really strange feeling to know that now there's nobody else to tell the stories. I mean, I guess they're not even stories anymore. They're just memories. I was hanging out with this other longtime friend of mine tonight, and, and he said something that really resonated with me. He said that, you know, it's okay to not be okay with Jerry's death. And he's right, you know. I'm not okay with it. The world, my world, your world, is a smaller place without JD in it. It's a little darker and a, a whole lot less fun. I'm the oldest of my parents' kids, and I never had an older brother growing up, but for pretty much my entire adult life, Jerry's been my older brother. He was there for me when I got married, when I went back to business school, and he was one of my biggest supporters when I started law school. When I became a prosecuting attorney, he used to brag to everybody about my unbeaten trial record. I was undefeated. And then I switched sides, and he started cheering, you know, whenever I was able to slay the dragon. I've always hated saying goodbye. And so to my brother Jerry, I think I'll just say, I'm going to go watch the sunrise. And until I see you again, brother, save me a seat at that cool kid's table. We've heard from Lieutenant Colonel Anthony Schaefer about how Jerry inspired him to take a stand. We heard from Brad Silvers, Jerry's last producer, about how Jerry was his friend, mentor, and boss. And we heard from perhaps his closest friend, Rick Alberton, about Jerry's loyalty, intelligence, and integrity. In closing, I'd like to share just a little bit about how Jerry touched my life. Jerry was the guy who could get any girl in the room, but would rather spend time drinking with the guys, trading stories about good times. He'd give you the shirt off his back if you wanted it, and get you to laugh before your day was over. A cynical optimist who was always looking for the ironic twist in life that made everything easier to understand. He always treated me like a son, a brother, and a friend, no matter what I was going through. He always took the time to listen to what I had to say, no matter how off-target I might have been. I'll always remember the times when Jerry would visit and we'd close down the bar together, or when he came to my wedding and caught my wife's garter. He wore it on his head for about 10 minutes after that just to get some laughs. We would talk for hours on end about life, love, memories, dirty jokes. We would talk about everything, sometimes until the wee hours of the morning. He was always there, always ready to listen, always able to give some solid advice, always able to help people in any way he could. It was impossible not to be Jerry's friend, because with Jerry... Business was always personal, as it should be. I would not have a career today if it wasn't for his patience, his guidance, direction, and above all else, his sense of humor. Jerry taught me how to grow up without losing touch with my inner child. He showed me how to roll with the punches and how to do it with a smile. He opened my eyes to truths that could only be shared by a master of logic and compassion. I've lost a brother, a friend, a mentor, and a confidant. I wish I had the chance to say goodbye, but I know that when we meet again, it'll be like we never missed a beat. 
like it always was. Via con Dios, JD. Next round is on me. Rest in peace, brother. Final thoughts. The life of Jerry Doyle. The friend of the show. And obviously and clearly a friend of Jesse's. And mine. This is Our American Stories. stories and now it's time for our this day in history segment brought to us by hillsdale college the best place in america to learn about our nation's history the constitution great literature all the things that matter in life and today in 1913 henry ford's assembly line started rolling you all know his name now you're about to know his story He is arguably the most influential man of the 20th century. He was praised by everyone from Presidents Woodrow Wilson and Herbert Hoover to the notorious gangsters, public enemy number one John Dillinger and Bonnie and Clyde. He's a man who changed how we all live. He gave us the Model T, the V8, and the traffic jam. Henry Ford, uh, I suppose, is a candidate for this elusive title of the most representative American ever because he did and symbolizes so many uh, things that I think are characteristic of this country's historical development. The Model T greatly expanded Americans' mobility, knitting America very close together at the same time that it opened American sense of what was possible. So he liberated at the individual level, the human spirit. Henry Ford was a revolutionary. He changed all of 20th century America. We're living in Henry Ford's world right now. Johnny O'Connor owned an automobile. He took his sweetheart for a ride last Sunday. He was dressed up in his best Sunday clothes. More books have been written about auto pioneer Henry Ford than any other person in the car business. Though he has critics, he put the world on wheels with his famous Model T. I have a daughter who is hungry for love. But less well known is the fierce independent streak that led him to wage a lone and heroic battle for the right to run his own business. It was a struggle against the kind of people who think they should have the power to determine what is best for the rest of us. This is the story of Henry Ford. The year is 1903. America is becoming the most powerful nation on earth, transformed from a post-Civil War wasteland into a budding superpower by a group of visionaries who battled the impossible 
to build unimaginable empires that have brought the country into the 20th century. Henry Ford is among this new generation of businessmen, and he is facing a new set of challenges as he struggles to get his company off the ground. I have set out to build the best motor car for popular use. The Ford motor car is durable and light, weighing only 1,000 pounds. It has a four-cylinder engine and is capable of speeds up to 45 miles an hour. It is priced at $900 compared to $1,500 for the average licensed car, which makes it the first car affordable for the common man. Young entrepreneur Henry Ford has created a new kind of car. But in order to sell it, he needs to get permission from the Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers, also known as Alum. Alum owns the patent on the automobile, giving them complete control over who can manufacture and sell cars. Alum chooses the winners and the losers for the future of the auto industry. They are, in a sense, a giant car monopoly, and Ford's future now rests in their hands. Thank you, Mr. Ford. We'll be in touch. Thank you, gentlemen. Ford is hopeful he'll be approved by Alum, allowing him to start his own business and to pursue his dream for the future of the car industry. When Ford entered the automobile business, people didn't drive their own cars. They had drivers. And so cars were seen as this luxury item. Ford's insight was that cars could be an everyday item. They could be very utilitarian. So that was, it was within the reach of ordinary people. Good luck, Henry. Ford has spent years developing his car for the common man. He builds his first gasoline-powered horseless carriage at the age of 33 and calls it the quadricycle. But the vehicle is expensive to produce and prone to breaking down. Ford's second attempt, the Model A, is much more suited to the needs of modern America. But he can't begin selling it without permission from Alum. Alum was successful in blackmailing other automobile companies, saying, you have to be licensed by us or we will sue you, and we own this patent. After months of deliberation, the Alum board reaches its decision. Henry Ford's application is rejected. He is one of the first applicants to be refused a license. At 40, he is broke and appears to be all washed up. Alum sees Ford as a loser, and the rejection is their way of telling him that he had no right to be in the business. It's a crushing blow. The auto cartel has stopped him in his tracks. He just needs to find a way around what appears to be an impassable fortification. It's a daunting task, but Henry Ford has been preparing for this moment his entire life. And when we come back, how Henry Ford did it. And my goodness, at 40, broke. And most people would have just quit. You know, when you're fighting against forces that big. And by the way, this still goes on today. Uh, how the government often colludes with private business to block competition. 
and how comp- and how big business tries to block small business. And Henry Ford was not going to be denied. When we come back, more of this remarkable American story, the good and some of the bad, after these messages. American stories. And on this day in history, in 1913, Henry Ford's assembly line started rolling for the very first time. And we left off with Henry Ford facing seemingly insurmountable obstacles. In his early 40s, broke, beaten down by a cartel. What the heck was next? Let's take a listen. It's July 30th, 1863. The Civil War is still raging, and it's 30 years before the first automobile appears in the U.S. Farmers William and Mary Ford have their first surviving child in Dearborn, Michigan. They name him Henry. Henry's parents expect all their five children to work alongside them on the land. But Henry finds the work tedious, and when he begins obsessing over machines that might make farm life easier, his parents indulge their naturally curious child. They allow him to neglect his chores and set up a workbench for him in the kitchen. Henry Ford was a natural-born mechanic. He had innate ability. One of the first places that he was able to begin to hone that ability was when he received a watch for his birthday. Like a lot of little boys who wanted to know about machines, he took that watch apart. Unlike most little boys, he was able to put the watch back together again. When his siblings received wind-up toys for Christmas, they had to hide them from Henry, or he would take them apart to see their inner workings, writes Phil Anschutz. Then, in 1876, Henry's 12-year-old world falls apart. She just did. A few months later, while traveling down the road with his father, Henry gets his first close-up view of a steam-powered road roller. Oh, what's that? Looks like a stove on wheels. He ain't got no horses. Also known as a steamroller, a bulky vehicle that chugged along country roads and performed farm chores for hire. Henry, you come back here. Listen to your father. Henry, you little devil, yeah. 
this? Steam power, boy! I see the steam engine at Harvest running a corn husker, but I never saw one pull a wagon. How's it work? Where'd you come from? Detroit! How long did it take? How fast can it go? Who built it? Did you build it, mister? How'd you do it? For Henry Ford, this was like the road to Damascus, a glimpse of the full potential of the Industrial Revolution and free market capitalism. Not merely brute factory power, but mobility, the capacity of a machine to venture deep into the countryside, off the beaten track, far from the railroad, and enhance the lives of farmers who had previously felt cut off from things. Formal education didn't much interest young Henry. He quit school after the fifth grade. Like his future friend Thomas Edison, he finds satisfaction by working with his hands on a complicated task. At some point after seeing the road roller, Ford begins dreaming of building his own mobile contraption. On a cold day in December 1879, Henry walks the nine miles from his family farm to the city of Detroit. There, he would reinvent himself. Then, on a spring day almost ten years later in 1888, wearing a wedding dress she had made herself, Clara Jane Bryant, who had grown up on a nearby farm, married Henry Ford. Three years later, Henry Ford took a job in Detroit at the Edison Illuminating Company. Working his way up to chief engineer by the age of 31. With his canny source of rugged engineering, he would stay in the shop long after hours, tinkering with machinery and doing his own experiments. As the years passed, however, he begins to spend less time worrying about providing electricity to the citizens of Detroit and more on what has become his after-hours obsession. Transportation in America was terrible once you got away from the railroads. Terrible. It was an enormous burden. I mean, if you're living on the farm, getting around on land is one of the biggest problems people have. And a Merry Christmas to you, Henry. In 1893, Ford sets out to build the gasoline-powered vehicle that had been taking shape in his mind. Henry Ford had an enormous capacity for concentration. He became something of a mad professor when he was actually working on a project. And so when he was building his first internal combustion engine, his own version of it, he got so wrapped up that he brought it home on Christmas Eve when his poor wife was cooking the turkey and getting the meal ready and everything. Everything's all right to plan for. Will you see what I got here? This is something that'll pop your eyes out. This is a beauty. I'm sure it's wonderful, Henry, but your supper's getting cold. Just huh? cl close your eyes. It's a surprise. Close your eyes. Don't peek. Ready? Ready? Voila! What is it? It's an engine. Gasoline, internal, combustion, engine. Oh. And right in the middle of all this, he stuck the machine on the kitchen sink, uh, screwed it to the sink, got his wife, whose, whose hands were all covered with gravy and stuff, to actually drip gasoline into the top of it. Now, here's the gas. Here, that's gas. Now, I want you to drip it in that lower funnel there, okay? Drip it in nice and steady now, okay? Drip it in nice and steady. Keep going steady. Here we go. We did it, Andy. We did it. 
connected the wires and started the machine and was quite oblivious to the fact that he was filling the kitchen with clouds of exhaust smoke. Henry Ford is determined to show the world that to succeed in America, all you need is integrity and ingenuity. He was once asked, what is your greatest ambition? Ford shot back to be free, a free man. Ford knew that he could not be free so long as Alum clouded the destiny he had marked out for himself. Ford is left with few options, but he isn't about to give up on his dreams. Ford thought that uh, the whole thing was ridiculous, uh, that there could not be a patent on the idea of the automobile, that the automobile was not the property of one single individual. And that's where we leave things off in this segment. When we come back, we're going to learn what Henry Ford does next. First segment, we got that major obstacle in his life. Second segment, which you just heard, we go back in time. By the way, and Out Where the West Was Won, and by the way, we love this book. And again, Out Where the West Was Won is by Phil Anschutz and chronicles so many of the pioneers, the business pioneers that made this country happen. When we study history, we rarely think of the businessmen. We must. We put them in the center. Also, the myth of the robber barons, which is a must-read. And uh, Professor Bert Folsom at Hillsdale College wrote it. And we've done some of those. You can go to ouramericannetwork.org and, my goodness, take a listen to a few of them, and you'll love them. And the idea that these men were robber barons is just a misnomer. And we like to take back history from those who've tried to distort it and give it to you straight, as straight as can be. No politics. Uh, just tell the story of these men. And again, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And we'll get into some of the parts of, of Henry Ford's life that were not so pretty. Uh, but for the most part, on balance, one of the greats of the 20th century. And my goodness, his contribution to our economy, to the middle class. And I just wanted to read one thing really quickly. It's how the chapter starts off. Uh, Henry Ford, and again, Out Where the West Was Won by Phil Anschutz. My ambition, said Henry Ford, is to employ still more men to spread the benefits of this industrial system to the greatest possible number to help them build up their lives and their homes. And so said Henry Ford, who did more than anyone in America to move the majority of the citizens of this country into the automobile-owning middle class. When we come back, what Henry Ford does next will astound you. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and our This Day in History, as always, is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College. And today, in 1913, Henry Ford's assembly line started rolling. Let's pick up where we left off. Ford is determined to get around Alum's stranglehold on the auto industry. But he's just one man going up against a virtual monopoly. If he's going to be a success without Alum, he's going to need to make a name for himself. It's a very simple thing on the make or break decisions, the gut. And that's what separates the great leaders and the great successes. And if you can't listen to it, you don't have it, you're never going to get it. Of course, it's never going to come from someplace else. Henry Ford challenges the owner of the biggest car company in the country to a race. It's just us, Mr. Ford. It's no interest in watching me circle the track with you following me those extra miles. <laughs> Quentin, I don't even aim on seeing you at the finish. Gentlemen, start your engines. Alexander Winton is known as the fastest driver in America and is also a prominent member of Allen. Beating Winton with a car of his own design has the potential to give Ford the boost he needs to start his own company. There's just one problem. Henry Ford has never raced a car before. It's a David and Goliath scene. Winton's famous world record holder has this fancy race car. Ford, the local boy, made good. For the first third of the 10-mile race, Ford lags behind Winton, struggling to control his car on the curves because he doesn't have any brakes. Then, on the sixth lap, he starts to close the gap. As Winton's engine begins to overheat and smoke, the crowd erupts as Ford zooms past his rival, winning the race by nearly a mile. Henry Ford's upset win over the fastest man in America makes him instantly famous. Ford's a hero, and this is really the first big time, I think, that he becomes a celebrity. Uh, the Ford name gets out there, and he milks it for everything that it's worth. And it was a very crucial part of Ford getting investors for the Ford Motor Company. But Ford's success is met with almost instant defeat. Henry. You're fired. Well, pretty hard to fire a fellow who's got his name on the automobile, don't you think? No, I've taken care of that, Henry. We're naming the company after the French explorer who founded Detroit. We're naming it Cadillac. William Murphy, like the key that. financial backer, fires Ford and starts another car company. Gather your things, Henry. You're finished. Ford leaves with his name, $900 and a dream. Take away my car, give me $900, take my name off the door. Dream of making a motor car where the farmer could go into the city and the city fella could go out into the country and see the grandness of it all. Understand it. Meet each other, understand each other. Ford raises $28,000, or $700,000 today. On June 16, 1903, Ford has enough money to incorporate the Ford Motor Company 
and before long he's producing 15 cars a day, priced low enough for almost any American. But Ford's investors propose an alternative way to increase profits. While we all appreciate the great good fortune we've enjoyed this first year, let me say that these profits are only the beginning. I propose that we raise the price of an automobile dramatically and go off to the top part of the market. From the beginning, there seemed to have been two strands in American car making. There were the people who were making horseless carriages for the rich, loading them down, making them heavy and luxurious. And then there was Henry Ford, who had this idea that a car should be able to go along the rutted tracks. It should be able to drive across a ploughed field. A farmer should be able to use it and take a wheel off it and fix a chain to it and, and cut some trees down or husk some corn. That was all he was interested in from the start. I'm interested in building more cars for more people for less money. I'm not interested in the big man or the rich man. I'm interested in the little fella who's never been able to afford anything special. I want to give him an automobile that's going to open up his world. Open up his eyes. And nobody's greed, nobody's greed, is going to take that away from him. Or me. Henry Ford's early success puts him on the map. Alum takes notice and hits him with a lawsuit claiming he's breaching their patent on the automobile. You see all these huge conglomerations suing people over patents. The big guys are taking advantage of the little guys, trying to find whatever angle they could and using their might, and those with the best tricksters win. In Detroit, Michigan, a panel of federal judges will decide whether Ford can continue to freely manufacture and sell his car. The Association of Licensed Automobile Manufacturers is suing Ford for a royalty on every car he sells. Ford knows those royalties would drive up the cost of his car, putting it out of the reach for the average consumer. For most early car makers, the lawsuit would be a devastating setback. But for Ford, it's something different, an opportunity. People react to failure in one of two ways. Either they get scared and give up or they take that failure that as a learning experience and they kind of use that experience to redouble their efforts. Here comes Mr. Ford. Good morning, sir. How are you? Ford is convinced the era of unchecked monopolies is over. So as his lawsuit winds its way through court, he openly defies the order from Alum and continues building and selling his cars. He believes there's a better way to conduct business in America and he's determined to make it a reality. What about a uniform? Let them form a union? After they hear the news I'm going to give you, they're not going to want to hear the word union. As of tomorrow, every Ford worker is going to get $5 a day. Did you say $5 a day? You heard it here. Furthermore, there'll be no more 10-hour days. As of tomorrow, eight hours a day. Nobody has to work eight hours a day. And there you have it. And we have one more really remarkable segment to close out this story. But already we're learning about the nature and character of some of these men. And again, we did Rockefeller and we did Vanderbilt, two of those so-called robber barons, and now we're bringing you 
Henry Ford's life. And again, always brought to you by Hillsdale College and how he dealt with failure. And I got to tell you, you're listening to this story and you're thinking, how did this guy just keep going? How did he do it? And this is the thing. And this is the rub. And again, we hear this over and over again in all of these stories. And ultimately, uh, when people do learn about Henry Ford, they learn about his anti-Semitism. And so much American history now is taught through the lens of what is wrong and what was wrong from the making of the Constitution and slavery. Uh, tragedy and terrible. The sin of omission in this great country. But put it in the context of the world, and slavery was everywhere. And so when studying history, we've got to always give the context, and we need to know what made these men great. It's easy to look at their failures and their failings, because these are men, and we all have them. And anti-Semitism was a cancer. It was a virus. And Ford's reputation suffered rightly and correctly for it. But when we come back, what Ford did for this country, how he changed this country, how he changed the world, and liberated, liberated people to do what they wanted with their lives and live and go where they wanted with those lives. More after these messages. This is Our American Stories. our American stories and we're talking about Henry Ford 1913 on this day in history his first assembly line started rolling and as always our this day in history is brought to us by the great folks at Hillsdale College one of the finest places to learn well just about everything in life from Aristotle and the great philosophers straight through to the arts sciences and of course sports required at Hillsdale and if you can't get to Hillsdale Hillsdale can come to you with their terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. The C.S. Lewis course is astounding, and their Constitution 101, as good as it gets on the nation's founding documents. And now, back to the story. Ford's unprecedented and groundbreaking $5 a day raise is more than double the rate of most U.S. factories. But Ford isn't just paying his workers better. He's also getting more out of them. He innovates a new system for producing cars. Rather than handcrafting each car one at a time at stationary workbenches, his are assembled by a line of workers, piece by piece. It's called the moving assembly line, and it completely changes manufacturing forever. But first, Ford must introduce this system to his employees. All right, where's my running board, man? Bring in the running board. Put it right over the holes, that's it. Don't bother anything else. You go back to the next car. Now my bolt man. Where's my bolt man? Put it right in the bolt holes. Don't bother to tighten them. Don't bother. Where's the man that's going to tighten them? You come in there. Now, next, 
You go back to the next car, bolt man. Dustin, how do you like that, huh? Ford didn't invent mass production, but he perfected mass production. He understood that a complicated product like an automobile could be simplified and could be made less expensive if the same thing was produced again and again and again. Using the assembly line, Ford's workers can build cars up to eight times faster than any other automobile factory in the world. What once took 12 and a half man hours to assemble now takes 93 minutes. The innovation allows Ford to standardize the eight hour workday, five days per week. Meanwhile, Ford awaits the future of his company. It's potentially a life-changing moment, not just for Ford, but for the future of every industry in the country. In a surprise decision, the court rules in favor of Henry Ford. Alum has no legal claim to the design of the car. Henry Ford is free to innovate without repercussion. Well guys, that was it. Let's go sell some cars, huh? <laughs> Ford's dream is made a reality. The car belongs to everyone. Ford's success put him forward in American life as a new kind of businessman. The American population ate this up and they made Henry Ford a kind of folk hero. Ford seizes the momentum and his factories go into overdrive. Every few months, Ford introduces a new model, making his way through the alphabet. But the Model K was too heavy and expensive. The Model N, though lighter and cheaper, had an engine cast in four pieces rather than one block. Ford kept at it. What are we going to call this here new model? Well, nothing fancy, just keep it simple. Use another letter out of the alphabet. Where are we now? That's T as I counted. Well, call it Model T. Model T she is, sir. Ford finally nailed it. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the moment you've been waiting for, Mr. It was the same kind of excitement that the Man on the Moon mission people had. There are a handful of those kinds of moments in American history where there's a dream that is so big in its potential and you think you got it. And then you get it. First of all, I'd like to thank all of you for coming out here. Ford's assembly line starts producing this revolutionary new car at a record rate. The Model T costs only $825. It's a four-cylinder, 20-horsepower, five-passenger family car. Powerful, speedy, and enduring. A car that looks good and is as good as it looks. And I got one word for you gentlemen of the press, and that word is volume. What's that, Henry? Volume. What do you mean? We're going to make so many of these Model Ts that you're going to run out of numbers to count. <laughs> The response was immediate and overwhelming. Orders pour in from doctors and farmers. Americans who have never dreamed of becoming motorists can now afford Henry Ford's Model T. The Model T changed everything. It gave people a new sense of power and authority and control over their lives. You can go wherever you wanted and you can go by yourself. You can get in your car, and you have access now to towns. 
to cities, to places that were beyond your reach just a few years earlier. They were also remarkably durable. They didn't break down a lot compared to other vehicles, and when they did, they were very simple to repair. This wasn't somebody just cheating out a product. This was a quality to the economical car that the world had never even imagined could be possible. Part of the enduring myth of the Model T is that all of them were black. But when the Model T first came on the market, customers could get almost any color except black. Blue, gray, green, and red were all available. It was not until five years later that the any color so long as it is black policy was finally implemented. Then in 1913, Ford enacted another amazing advancement with the implementation of standardized interchangeable parts. Unlike other cars of the time, every Model T produced on that line used the exact same valves, gas tanks, tires, etc so that they could be assembled in a speedy and organized fashion. 1,000 cars a day rolled out of the factory in 1914, 2,000 in 1916. As productivity went up, the price went down. Soon, 60% of all cars made in the U.S. were Model Ts. Cutting prices enabled Ford to achieve what were his two aims in life to bring the pleasures of the automobile to as many people as possible and to provide a large number of high-paying jobs for his workers. Henry Ford created what became the most important industry in the American economy. He had no idea of the enormous impact it would have on almost every sector of American life. He literally changed America, the way we live, the way we do things, and the way we go about our business. Ford's reputation won't always be so positive, but his revolution inspires an entire generation of visionaries who will transform the fabric of American life. Childhood friends William Harley and Arthur Davidson attach an engine to a bicycle and begin selling motorcycles to the masses. Milton Hershey applies Henry Ford's assembly line model to the mass production of chocolate. Chicago merchant William Wrigley takes his chewing gum national. And in Hollywood, Polish immigrant Max Factor begins distributing cosmetics for movie stars to drugstores across the country, inventing a completely new consumer product, makeup. In the spring of 1947, Henry Ford returned home from vacation. On his second day back, the powerhouse that supplied his home with heat and light flooded. That evening, Henry and his wife turned in early. Power still hadn't returned, and their room was lit only by an oil lamp and a few candles. Before the night was out, Henry Ford the father of mass production, the inventor of the modern age, the man who embodied the American dream, laid his head on his wife's shoulder and left the world just as he came into it 
84 years earlier by candlelight. In Detroit, motorists were asked to come to a complete stop at the time the automaker's body was being lowered into the ground. For that second, when the automobiles came to a stop, Detroit returned to the way Henry Ford had found it. And great job on that, Greg. And Greg Hengler always does such great work on these pieces. And I want to close with Phil Anschutz. He wrote this in How the West Was Won. Because of Ford, many middle-class folks could become motorists. Automobiles were no longer just toys of the rich. This was particularly important to the American West, a land of vast distances and rugged obstacles. Westerners bought and used more cars, cars than Easterners or Southerners. Visitation at national parks and other Western wonders soared once families could drive themselves cheaply and reliably in their Model T and A Fords. And many who toured the West, well, later they moved there in their Fords. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Our American Stories.